Low Light, Episode Twelve, Part One. Pushes a second slip of rolled-up paper through the keyhole in the lantern room door, and crosses her fingers. Eric tuts and shakes his head. Reg sits, tail wagging, ready to step up should he be needed. They wait, listening to the squealing and scrabbling for a few seconds more, and then the noise stops. Elle's eyes fly open. The friends wait. Listening, there is a renewed scuffling, a pitter pattering, and L grabs Charity's hand, and then Ruby's. She squeezes her eyes shut again, watched in fascination by Gavin and Reg, and with continued cynicism by Eric. Suddenly, L's eyelids fly open wide again, and she grabs the door handle and rattles it. Key. She demands, and Eric is all patting pockets and oh, and uh, you, well, I think it was until he finds the thing and inserts it falteringly in its place. On the click, L shoves the door open. It judders as it bangs against the wall. An empty room confronts them. They peer in before hurriedly covering their noses at the acid smell. There's a mayhem of ripped papers and gnawed objects, but the rats are making their way stoically over the lantern's roof and along the connecting branches of the trees into the dark canopy, still lively with wind. Ruby is delighted and dismayed as she moves into the room. The pokey air settles around her and she tightens her grip on her nose. The light in there is low as usual, and seems to wait patiently for something. Eric whimpers, and Elle steadies him. He turns to her. Well done, Elle. Really well done. Oh, I'm sorry I let it go on. I'm a lazy sod, aren't I? Letting this vermin build up. Honestly, I should set traps. What did you write on that paper? Gavin leans towards Elle. Just leave now. But that didn't work, so then leave the lantern room immediately. Right. Charity is drifting about. She is hovering her hands around the edge of the room, near the window frames, where there is dead plant matter and bird droppings and mildew and bits of moss growing. She lets out her own quiet sounds of wonder and upset. Are you all right, Charity? She ignores Ruby and continues her inspection, seemingly enthralled by the small room and its nooks and crannies. Ruby looks over at Eric, glances at Elle. Have they noticed Charity's strange behaviour? She inspects the funny little place they're standing in. What is this place? It's Eric's storytelling room, isn't it, Eric? Says Gavin with some feeling. Hmm? Well, yes, used to be. 
I don't come in here so often now. It has a resonance. Hmm. You feel that, do you? Hmm, perhaps you have something of the gift, eh? Does she? Gavin is awed. His eyes shine as he gazes at Ruby. Ruby allows a tiny smile, and then sets her attention back to Charity, just as the edges of the room are starting to glow. There's that sound again, the chiming. Eric notices that and takes in a breath, tension in his stance. Now then, Charity, be careful. This isn't your place to change as you like. What's... how is that... It looks like the edges of the window were... Charity puts her hands over her ears and winces. Are you okay, Charity? Asks Ruby for the second time. Charity shakes her head. Just let it happen, Charity. Don't try and block it out. Take your hands away from your ears. Open your eyes, lass. That's it. Just let it in. Better? Charity nods. She breathes in and out and settles her feet onto the messy floor and turns again to the windows and their mini landscapes and she concentrates then. The chiming settles into a faint background music. The light lowers. A greenness intensifies in the room. It glows and pulses. Its fingers reach along the crevices where the wood meets plaster and wall meets wooden floor. It gathers energy around the center light fitting in the ceiling and the glass in the windows crackle with it. Ruby spies a little daisy and takes in a breath, astonished. Its head nods in the corner by a box of old toys and slowly more enchanted flowers and leaves grow and unfurl until the room is as green as a summer garden. Eric is crying. Gavin is terrified. Ruby has taken her phone out and with shaking hands is trying to record this extraordinary thing so she knows it wasn't just a dream. Charity, asks Gavin gruffly. Are you doing this? Because if you are, can you stop? Because we're supposed to be reversing this stuff, not making more of it. What is it she's doing? How is this happening? Padma, are you here? Oh, Vishwa, what a legacy. Charity has your gift, my dear friend. It's magical, says Elle. And they watch as the greenery begins to form an image, mid-air. Slowly, a picture is being drawn of a small human figure. A child, it seems, is being rendered in leaves and stalks and new buds, bright with sap and glossy, looking for the sun and asking for water and a gentle breeze. Eric's face drops as he watches this image take shape and he begins to perspire. All right, Charity. I think that's enough now. It's very impressive, but you don't know what you're doing, so... I told you, she's making more mims, look! 
Gavin points wildly at the three-dimensional green shape. Charity! Stop now, before you make a mess! Reg sets up a whine and readies himself for launch. No, Reg, leave it, Reg. Reg contains himself, just. But Charity doesn't stop. In response to Eric's admonishment, she speeds up her movements as if she's trying to finish the task before she's made to stop, and her face darkens as she concentrates more intently until she grimaces and lets out a sob of frustration. Her hands, paws, raised mid-air, shaking. Charity, stop! Eric is getting upset. How is she doing that? Elle, stop her! Elle grabs Charity's arm and breaks the spell. The child figure, freshly formed, floats in the middle of the space for a moment and then starts to shrivel again as the glimmering green retreats into the edges and the corners of the little room. The rat smell sharpens. Charity doubles over, breathing hard. Ruby shoves her phone away and steps forward to help Elle to steady the girl. Eric collapses into his chair and covers his face with his hands, and Deirdre jumps onto his lap to comfort him. Oh! Oh, now then, Deirdre, my dear, oh, my lovely friend, he whispers to her. His face is white. Charity watches him as she gets her breath back. Who was that? They all wait for Eric. What? He wipes his eyes. Who? Who? I don't know, do I? It was your picture, not mine. He looks at the floor, and if one were trained in the art of lie detection, one might identify such a look as being a little shifty. Ruby's training taps her on the shoulder, and she notices. Her alert level rises. Yeah, but I don't know where it came from. It's like there's a story in this room waiting to be told. Waiting for its life breath. Why did you stop me from telling it? Why don't you tell it? Charity's eyes blaze and her words pour out. Ruby fumbles for her camera again and she continues gathering evidence, quietly framing the old man as he wriggles uncomfortably under the young apprentice's interrogation. Eric moistens his lips looks away again, wipes his brow. Because you don't know what you're doing. You've got to be careful. You've got to go slowly at first. And and don't you tell me what stories I should tell, either. Who do you think you are? You're so rude. How did you do that? Asks Gavin. I don't know. Well, what were you thinking of at the time? Tries Elle. Not anything... Well, just here. I was just looking around and I just felt it came from here, Charity says hoarsely. From this place, this room, this place where Eric tells stories of things that come into the world. I don't know what any of this is. It just... I just felt it. And it happened. She looks up at Elle then. 
the same thing happened at Padma's house, but not the drawing. Just plants started growing really quickly and sunshine and, oh God, that sound was excruciating. Eric, don't you know who that was, really? It'll just be a memory that's got mixed up. You're distressed, Charity. It's not a good way to go about things. You have to learn discipline. My memory? Really? So, that could have been me. Like a picture of me when I was younger. Could that be it? Like a, a shadow of what happened to me when I was little. What? No, no, no. But that makes some sense. And really, I mean... What else could it be, thinking about it? It has to be me. I don't know what else it could have been. Okay, Char, it's okay. Elle comforts her friend, and she quietens a little, as if brought back to the present. It isn't you. So, it was a mim, then, wasn't it? We all saw it. Charity just started to create. No, it wasn't. It was just... Oh, look... I'm tired. I need to just... It's too complicated for you to understand. Oh, here we go. Well, it is. Eric stops, having noticed Ruby filming him. He raises his chin. Deirdre growls. Charity, I think you do have a similar way as Padma had. I think you use your emotions, which is why it's hard to explain what you did. You are an emotional person. The feeling in you is only just below the surface. You're quick to anger, to cry, to laugh. It only takes a moment and there you are, all of you, in the room or whatever place you happen to be standing in. Padma was the same. It's why everyone loved her so much. All of us have a different way, you see. I, I just talk. <laughs> I don't know now really where the stories come from because I've been doing it for so long, but I just open my mouth and the stories fly out of it. Well, you must be an academic or something. Written words seem to work for you. Gavin is watching Eric doubtfully. Now, I don't know what your technique might be, Ms. Hussein, if you do have a gift, but I'd like you to put that phone down and leave my house now. Ruby looks guilty and puts her phone away. Yes, Mr. Bright, sorry. It's just I'm trying to understand what's happening here. We've just witnessed something... Extraordinary. And I was hoping you were going to explain. Did you? Hmm. No. As I said, you wouldn't understand. It's too complicated. Ruby's eyes narrow at this. Gavin sighs. Eric plows on, undeterred. I will work with Charity and Elle to see if we can clear up some of the mess. Once you've both gone... That bottle of green I gave you will be just right for drinking now, Gavin. 
and you and Ruby will have a fine evening of it if you get it open. Eric, are you matchmaking? What about Shirley? Chimes in Charity. Ruby has flushed bright red. Gavin is lost for words, and they both forget for a moment the events they've just witnessed. There'll be some interesting conversations, Gavin. You can tell Ruby about the hen harrier you thought you saw. She'll be interested in that. You see, Charity Shirley isn't interested in birds, so it'll be something for him and Ruby to chat about. Quite rare hen harriers are, but there's one there, isn't there, Gavin? Not in your garden. Yeah, I thought so. It'll be a sparrow hawk. Excuse me. I know the difference between a hen harrier and a sparrow hawk. But they live on high moorland. We're not so far from that environment. Far enough. All right, all right. Well, as I said, you can discuss it at home. There's nothing more you can do here now. And if you want progress made on our, uh, situation, then, as I said, I need to have a chat with Charity and Elle. Eric waits. I hope Shirley's okay, Charity says. Yeah, blurts Gavin. I'll call her again when I get home to see if I can raise her. Okay, well, Ruby, shall we leave them to it? I mean, if you think it's okay to go out. Yes, it'll be fine. We won't be in any danger, I don't think. My car's just down the road. No, you can stay at my house to be on the safe side. Elle lets out a bit of a splutter. Gavin glares at her. Come on, we'll work it out. Reg, are you staying here? Reg settles down in the corner and sighs. Okay. Right, well... Good luck, you three. Hopefully we'll wake up to a quiet neighbourhood tomorrow. Yes, I think that might be a bit much to expect, Gavin. We're not God. The wind outside sets up a howl and chucks some hard rain at the glass as Eric makes his proclamation and breaks the tension. Finally, Eric will attempt to get the cat back into its bag. No, not you, Deirdre. Stand down. I mean the proverbial cat. That's it. Put those claws away, thank you. Across Lower Lee, underneath the noise of the raging storm, there has grown a layer of peril that spikes the thoughts of the inhabitants. The neighbours are up past their bedtimes, and the orange lights glow from their windows as they rehash the day's events and set to contemplating, speculating, and generally get down to worrying about what's going on. If you look, you'll see that some of them are straining to see from their doors and windows if the animals in the road are still there, digging away. Some are venturing out into their gardens and driveways to get a better look, only to be told to go back inside by a police officer in a bright yellow jacket. Some of them are trying to evade the curfew patrols, including, it looks like, Brandon and Stefan, who are peering around the front door 
as Lewis cranes his neck to check the status of police patrols on the street. His eyes linger on Padma's house. He jumps as Brandon shouts, All clear! And his guests run out into the school, shouting their goodbyes and their thanks, leaving their hosts waving and bidding them be careful. And back in they go to their warm fire and their frightened little puppy. The two escapees cling together, heads down, and ward off a passing policeman, indicating that they are on their way home. The officer escorts them and bids them stay inside now. No more promenading. At the top of the hill, they burst inside their house and giggle like schoolchildren at their adventure. Well, the meeting will be lively tomorrow. Oh, God, the community-minded will be seething with theories, won't they? No doubt. They'll have organised a fundraiser to build the memorial boar zoo before I can get the kettle on, I expect. (laughs) If the meeting goes ahead, of course. What if they keep us locked down? They can't, can they? Of course they can, if they get the permissions. I mean, they'd have to enforce it, but... Well, I don't want you gored by a rampant boar, my dear, so if you need to cancel... What makes you think the boar would win? Hmm? You know I can be fearsome when roused. Donnie, please, it's past midnight and I have to get up early in the morning. Spoil sport. Grrr. Oh, you big tease. Come here, you beast. And off they run upstairs, stimulated and enlivened by the events of the evening. All their worrying is left behind them as they hide out in their chic but fun little house. Julius, the long-eared rabbit, twitches his nose at their rumpus. He resumes his chewing, listening to the raging weather and feeling thankful for his hutch under the stairs, despite the Diamante decor. Julius has got the right idea. The wind whips and whirls, twigs take flight, the last of the leaves that have clung on through frost and snow are ripped from their branches and swirl aloft. The trees bow and scrape the pavements, then fling themselves up again as if calling to their dislodged twiggery. Come back! We didn't mean it! The birds are taking shelter where they can, in the lower stories of shrubs and bushes mainly. The white-eyed blackbird whose family have long graced the gardens of the neighbourhood, is just disappearing around the back of Sally's house. From there, we can see Sally herself. She stands at the sink, contemplating her final glass of the evening. A cheeky Beaujolais, opened at 3pm. She contemplates spitting out the black threads of saliva when she brushes her teeth, if she remembers to brush There not being anyone to brush for, as it were. Yes, the abstinence doesn't seem to have lasted. It looks like she's had a bit of a cry earlier, too. Relief at Tanya's message, letting her know that Charity was out. By then, she was one bottle in. She tried to refrain from opening another. She made dinner and drank some pomegranate tea, 
but when her son came home and disappeared into his room, leaving her alone with only the sound of the wind for company, she relented. Tomorrow, she thinks. Tomorrow she has to stay sober because she'll be minuting the meeting at the theatre. Tanya wants her in for a couple of hours in the afternoon, too. She needs eyes and ears at the church while Tanya has business in town. She faces her reflection in the dark window, looks down again at the drink, pours it down the sink, takes a breath and fills a fresh glass with water. Her pinched face relaxes a little and she puts the house to bed. Upstairs, she stands where she had earlier made her promise to herself to do something to help right the wrong. But she avoids her reflection this time and peers outside and down to the road below. She can't see any animals now, but she thinks she can see the scar in the tarmac where they've dug down. Bizarre, it's so straight. The council should employ them, she thinks. They do a better job than that private firm does, squeezing profit from our council tax. They can't dig a straight line to save their lives, and heaven forbid anyone ask them to use their own common sense for anything. She allows her imagination to wander off into a world where squirrels wear high-vis vests and carry miniature spades, and foxes lean out of van windows, one paw on the wheel, a smarmy word for any vixens they spot on the street. She looks over at the photograph of her and Tony, walks over, picks it up. I'm going to tell Charity. I'll see her tomorrow. I can do it then. I'll find a way to explain it and protect Luke from your associates. Luca, my boy. Parents are supposed to protect their children, Tony, not exploit them. You fuck. I sometimes wish I'd killed you, you know. You shouldn't have been allowed to die quietly of natural causes. It's unjust. She sinks heavily onto her bed. I do still miss you. That's true. Can't help it. But only God knows why. You utter shit. She clutches the photograph and then places it face down on the table, gets into bed and turns out the light. The street light throws angry shadows across the room through the net-curtained windows. Rain spatters against the glass. Water drops roll down the surface like Sally's tears. This rain is a devil. It comes in great torrents and then relents, held back by this overconfident wind, and then comes at you again. The air is grubby with sweet wrappers and the odd kebab tray. These pretty little streets, bursting with Victorian and Edwardian architecture, are being tainted as these scraps of litter take to the air and flap about like blundering winged acrobats. I'll have to grab onto one. Oh! Chilli sauce. Oh, hang on. Oh, we go. Oh, no, we don't. Oh, I'm going to jump off. It's not safe. Okay. Right. Yes, 
We can see in here. Lance is standing at his kitchen island, leaning over his laptop, googling wasp sting on testicle. He winces as he shifts his weight to his other foot. The wasp is trapped under a glass next to him, silently bashing itself against its prison walls. He stares at it, and then takes another painful jaunt to the patio door to look into the garden. He can't see any animals now. The patio chair that flew past earlier is lodged in next door's cherry tree. She'll be at the door first thing about that, he's sure of it. Moany old cow. He checks the clock, decides to call Charity, which is unusual because Lance doesn't usually concern himself with his daughter's well-being. He thinks of her as a pain in the arse, something he is fond of telling her. He gets particularly annoyed at her constant griping about her forgotten childhood, determined for there to be some shocking story there, trying to make trouble for him like the meddlesome little girl she's always been. To be fair, though, he did let her get away with too much when she was younger. He spoiled her. But he won't apologise for that, because her mother was a complete witch and treated Charity like a piece of shit, and he wasn't going to sit around and let Helen turn his daughter into a whore. He saw to it that Charity wanted for nothing as a child. He drummed self-respect into her. He's proud of that. Not that she ever thanks him for it. Well, kids don't realise that they have to learn the hard way sometimes. He sighs as he admits that, despite his efforts, she still gets herself into scrapes. Her mother's influence. She is her mother's daughter in that respect. There's no getting away from it. Lance ponders. He sometimes thinks about that time he left Charity alone with Tony when she was very young. He'd had no choice, of course. He had to go and pick Helen up from the police station. Again, on his motorbike, he could hardly strap a three-year-old to the back of it. And she seemed fine when he got back, no matter what the teenage charity says, insisting that she got post-traumatic stress disorder or some such bollocks. He would have known if anything was wrong. Tony was a dirty git, that was true, but he'd never go near children, despite some of his business activities, and never would he hurt Lance's own blood. Never. She was three years old. As if. It's unthinkable. Lance chides himself for lingering on this train of thought. Put a lid on it, Lance. You did a good job. You're a good dad. Which is why you're going to call your only daughter and check she's all right. It's a good thing to do. You're not asking for anything. Don't need anything. She'll appreciate it. Maybe arrange to take her out for a curry, even. And if anything has happened to her with all this weird shit going on in the neighbourhood, he'll have to handle the transfer alone tomorrow night, so he should make sure she's okay if only for that. Not that that's why he's calling. He's worried about her, is all. He waits for her phone to be answered. Here's the message. Sighs dramatically. Charity. It's your father. Why do you never answer my phone calls? It's not very daughterly. I, uh, I, I was just worried about you. 
What with the curfew and whatever madness is going on. Just checking everything's okay for tomorrow, but I mainly wanted to check you're all right. Call me back. He clicks the call to end, throws the phone casually across the surface of the island with a little too much force, and then has to lurch painfully after it to try and catch it before it skitters off the other side. The phone outpaces him, and during its pursuit of oblivion on the hard slate floor, it knocks the glass to its own doom and frees the aforementioned wasp for a second bite at the cherry, as it were. Poor Lance. It's going to be a long night. been listening to Low Light, written, performed and produced by Melanie Crawley for Crawley Voice Studio. Find out more at crawleyvoicestudio.com. Thanks for listening.